You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The book of Acts, chapter 19. We're looking at the second of two very quirky episodes at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. One takes place at the end of Acts, chapter 18, with Apollos. We looked at that last week. The second takes place at the beginning of Acts, chapter 19, with a group of 12 disciples of John the Baptist. The thing that... Apollos and these disciples of John the Baptist have in common is the fact that they are all acquainted with the baptism of John and not the ministry of Jesus. They are, as you will see, sort of Old Testament saints, in a sense, who are still looking forward to the coming of their Messiah. They have listened to the ministry and to the preaching of John the Baptist. They have been baptized with a baptism of repentance in preparation for the Messiah, but they have not actually heard that that Messiah had come. They didn't have internet, TV, and radio, and so when the Lord came, He didn't announce it on the airwaves for everybody to know about. It took a while for the gospel message to get to all of these corners of the Roman Empire, and you had these little unreached pocket groups here and there, and this group of disciples of John the Baptist represents a body of Old Testament saints people who were looking forward to the Messiah, had placed their faith in Him, but did not know that He had come, had not heard anything about Him, did not know who He was. And as Paul runs into them, it kind of serves as an illustration of the transitional nature of the book of Acts, which I mentioned last week. That Acts chronicles for us a transition period between Old Covenant and New Covenant. We see a lot of sort of odd things happening in the book of Acts that are not normal for today, that are not normative, and that sort of strike us as odd. In your Bibles, Acts chapter 19, read the first seven verses. Follow along with me as I read. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. Now, the passage before us this morning is a little odd or somewhat difficult to understand for a couple of different reasons. One of them is because Luke's a little scant on the details. There's a lot of stuff that I wish Luke would have filled in and spent a little bit more time telling us about, but he just simply doesn't. He's he's kind of scarce with the details. But he has given us enough to understand what the passage means in its context in the book of Acts. The second reason that the passage proposes a few questions and concerns for us is because it mentions tongues. Now, this is not the first time that tongues has been mentioned in the book of Acts. You know that full well. 
Acts has been, tongues have been mentioned in Acts in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10. This is the third time that tongues is mentioned in Acts chapter 19. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, Acts 10 with Cornelius, and Acts chapter 19. This is the last time that tongues is mentioned in the book of Acts. And so we're going to kind of look at, at tongues throughout the book of Acts and sort of get a little bit of a review and ask ourselves the question, what is going on here with these disciples of John the Baptist? Why is it that when they get saved, they speak in tongues? What is Luke trying to show us? Now, the subject of tongues for some of you may raise more questions than it does answers. I have to assume that the bulk of you were here for Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10. In those two chapters, we spent four Sundays, four Lord's Days, on the subject of tongues. So if today's message raises more questions than it does answers, then I would just encourage you to do one or perhaps both things, and that is to request the CDs or the tapes of those four messages on the subject of tongues, and then second, if you have questions, come and talk to me. Because I can't possibly, in one sermon, answer every question that might come up on the subject of tongues. So let's take a look at what happens in Acts chapter 19. Luke says that the Apostle Paul, in 19 verse 1, while Paulus was at Corinth, Paulus is the one you saw last week who was in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila saw something deficient in his understanding, and then in talking to him, they found out that he's only acquainted with the baptism of John. So they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Having become saved, Apollos now is a powerhouse of ministry, and he's gone to Corinth. Well, while Apollos is in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey, traveling from east to west through the upper regions, through Galatia, visiting the churches, and then he comes down to Ephesus. And it says that he passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. Now, I'm going to tell you more about the city of Ephesus in a couple of weeks. It's an interesting city. There's a lot going on in Ephesus that has to do with some events in Acts chapter 19. But I just want you to make one mental note this morning. Everything that happens in Acts chapter 19 happens in the city of Ephesus. This becomes a headquarters for the Apostle Paul. And I'll tell you more about the city in coming weeks. So while the Apostle Paul is at Ephesus, Luke says he meets a group of disciples. The word disciples is a word that means learners or followers. It does not necessarily indicate that these group of men were believers in Christ. In fact, the rest of the passage makes it clear that they weren't believers. They were just simply disciples. Now, Scripture uses the term disciples to refer to people who were not believers in Christ, like disciples of the Pharisees, like disciples of John the Baptist, and listen, even some people who were called disciples of Christ were not believers. They were not saved. John chapter 6, it says that Jesus knew who among all those who were following Him, who among His disciples, He knew who believed and who didn't believe. And so He started turning up the heat in some of the things He was saying to them, saying things like John 6.65, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Well, John 6.66 says that from that point forward, some of his disciples walked with him no more. They left. Had enough? That's tough stuff. To suggest that God decides who follows Christ? They couldn't stomach that. And so they bailed. They were disciples who did not believe. These are disciples of John the Baptist. These are men who have been acquainted with John's baptism. They've been baptized by John, or at least some of John's disciples, and they are among this group of Old Testament saints who are still kind of waiting for their Messiah, 
and they're completely unacquainted with Christ or the Gospel. Now something happens in their conversation with Paul, and I wish I knew where Paul ran into them, how it is that he met them, and how it is that he got to talking with them. But they obviously claim to have believed in the Messiah and to have been baptized. But something in their conduct, something in their lifestyle, indicates to Paul something's out of kilter. Something's not right. And so the Apostle Paul begins to try and put his finger on what it is that is odd about this group of quote-unquote saints and why it is that something is wrong. So he asks them a question. Look at verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now they were obviously claiming to have believed. And so Paul asks a question that kind of helps him sort of identify what's the problem with this group. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now what's the assumption behind the question? You see what the assumption is behind the question? All those who believe, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Now the reason I point that out is because there's a whole section of Christian community, I'm not trying to point fingers or throw rocks at glass houses or anything like that, who honestly think that you can believe in Christ, be baptized, and receive a portion of the Holy Spirit, but then you have to wait for something more. You have to be baptized by the Spirit through the laying on of hands or the slaying of the Spirit or some second experience that you have where you receive the Holy Spirit and then the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. Well, these people aren't even saved. And look at Paul's assumption. If you believed, you should have received the Spirit. There was something that Paul saw in them that he said, well, if they believed, they should have received the Spirit. But he's starting to wonder, something's wrong with them. Maybe, the, maybe they haven't received the Spirit. Now, this would constitute something odd. Somebody who had believed in Christ but never received the Holy Spirit, who never had the Spirit of righteousness come into their lives, Now, friends, I want to point something out here. This should be obvious to all of us, and it's this. Just because someone claims to believe does not make it so. Just because somebody says, I prayed a prayer, I checked a box, I went down the aisle, I believed, I know Jesus, I know this stuff, it's been with me since the day I was born, just because somebody says they believe does not make it so. There was something with this group of disciples that the Apostle Paul is thinking to himself, something's odd here, it's off. There was no evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives, and so Paul asked them the question, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? You see, the Spirit should be there. An individual who's been born again by the Spirit of God and has been indwelt by the Spirit of God ought to demonstrate and exemplify the attributes of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Just because you say you believe, Just because you say you're saved doesn't necessarily make it so. I've told people, as I've counseled them and as I've talked to them, I've counseled them this way. If there is no evidence in your life that the Spirit of God is present in your life, if you have nothing in your life that indicates that you have been changed at the very core of your being and there is no fruit of repentance and no fruit of salvation and no sanctification, then you have no reason to have any assurance that you are indeed saved. And I've told people, I don't care what you prayed, I don't care what card you filled out, I don't care what event you went to. If the Spirit of God has not saved you and sanctified you and there's no evidence in your life, don't for one minute 
put your hope in a false assurance that you're actually a believer. And Paul kind of pins them down. Paul doesn't say, well, they said their beliefs, so I'll just have to agree with that and assume that that's true. Something is odd. And so Paul asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Look at their answer. Their answer confirms that they were not saved. Now, no. We hadn't even heard whether there is a Spirit. Now, what they mean by that is not we hadn't heard that the Spirit exists, because John had preached about the baptism of the Spirit. John promised one who was coming after him who would not baptize with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And the ministry of the Spirit and the person of the Spirit are taught in the Old Testament. So these Old Testament believers who have listened to the baptism of John, they know that the Spirit exists. They're not saying, we didn't even know that there was a Spirit that existed. What they're saying is, we had not even heard that the Spirit had come. That He had fulfilled the promise. There was a promise that was given. The Spirit will come and the Messiah will come and He will baptize you with the Spirit. The Spirit will come connected with the ministry of the Messiah. And so Paul asked him, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? No. We hadn't even heard that the Spirit had come. Now Paul knows. If they had been associated with Christian baptism, then they would have heard all about the ministry of the Spirit. They would have heard all about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and the baptism which symbolizes the Spirit's identifying us in those things. At the moment, of, at the time of baptism, if they had been baptized as Christians, they would have heard all of that and understood all of that. So now Paul understands that it's not just something that's deficient in their life, it's actually something that is deficient in their belief system. Into what then were you baptized? You say you believed, but you haven't received the Spirit, so you obviously were not baptized with a Christian baptism. Into what then were you baptized? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Well, that explains everything. So what does the Apostle do? The Apostle says, we haven't heard of the Spirit. Well, hey, have I got a treat for you? You just come on forward and I'll get all charged up here. I'll lay hands on all of you, give you the Spirit. What you really need is a power, a work of the Spirit, some experience. No, he has to preach Christ. He doesn't tell him about the Spirit. Who does John tell them about? Look at verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who is coming after Him, that is Jesus. Well, Paul begins where they're at. They had heard of John. John had predicted that one was coming who would baptize with the Spirit. So Paul has to begin with the one that John was pointing to. Their, their understanding of the ministry and the mission and the work of Christ was even more defective than Apollo's. They hadn't even heard of who the Messiah was. At least Apollos knew and he could teach accurately things concerning Jesus. But not these disciples. These disciples haven't heard anything about that. So Paul doesn't work on giving them the Spirit. Paul gives them Christ. John preached about the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. And that's where Paul takes them to. Having understood that, verse 5 says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They believed. So how do I know they believed? Because Paul was not in the habit of baptizing unbelievers. They obviously believed him. They obviously placed their faith in Christ, having now heard of the ministry of Jesus, and then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, just on an aside, this is the only place in the New Testament where it's recorded that somebody was rebaptized. It's the only place. It happened, obviously. Why, why did the Apostle Paul want these twelve disciples to be baptized again? What was their first baptism symbolic of? Repentance. 
It wasn't a baptism that portrayed Christian obedience and identification with Christ. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism in John's ministry. They weren't even saved when they were baptized the first time. They just repented and were waiting for the coming one. And now that they understand all of salvation and the cross and the gospel and the resurrection and all that that means, now that they've come to a saving knowledge, well, we have to obey the Lord by being baptized as believers. And so they do. They submit and they're rebaptized. Look at verse 6. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. So let's review real quick. Their disciples, John the Baptist, Paul asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Well, no, we hadn't even heard the Spirit had been given. Well, then into what were you baptized? John's baptism. Oh, that's a baptism of repentance. You've repented and been baptized as a baptism of repentance. Kind of these Old Testament saints who are lingering in a sense, waiting for the Messiah to come. And now Paul has to fill them in on the 20 years that they've been out of the loop. He came. This is 20 years ago. He came. And here's what he did. And so then they believe. Then they're baptized as believers. And Paul lays his hands upon them. And the Spirit comes and they speak in tongues and they prophesy in all about 12 men. Now two questions. What's going on here with tongues? And why do these men speak in tongues? In order to answer that question, I want to take you back to Acts chapter 2 for a few moments. And I want to put Acts chapter 19 in the context of the entire book of Acts so that we can see why it is that Luke tells us that these 12 men believed, received the Holy Spirit, and then spoke in tongues. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, this is in fulfillment to the promise of Jesus back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where he says that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So a few days later, they're all waiting, they're praying. Chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now the word tongues there is a word that can only be translated two ways. It can only mean two things. Only two. First, it can refer to the muscle in your mouth, the tongue. Second, it can refer to a language of a people. Never anything else. It doesn't mean babble. It doesn't mean ecstatic utterances. It doesn't mean an angelic language or a prayer language. It is used of the muscle in your mouth or of a bona fide language of a people. Language. Now how do we know that Luke means the second? Could he mean the first? They spoke with other tongues. Well, you say, that's absurd. They would have had to cut their tongues out and swap tongues and speak with somebody else's tongues. That's obviously not what Luke is saying. What does he mean by it? He means language. They spoke with other languages. Now, how do we know that's what he means? Well, he clarifies what he means by tongues three more times in the passage. He says it four times just so there can be no confusion. Look at verse 6. They were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own dialectos. Dialect. It's the word for dialect. It refers to the dialect of a language. Look at verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of them in our own dialect? 
That's the same word. Look at verse 11. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own language, tongue. Same word used as back in verse 4. Four times, Luke tells us, what these tongues were. They were languages. Not just languages, but dialects. It was a supernatural gift given by the Spirit of God that enabled these disciples, now apostles, to speak in languages they had never learned and never studied, and to do it right down to the dialect and to do it fluently. And this amazed those who watched. How is it that we hear them speaking in our own language, our dialect? These are uneducated people. They don't know the Cretan language. They don't know the Mesopotamian language. And yet they're articulating the great deeds of God, the Gospel, in our dialect. Supernatural. Not ecstatic utterances. Not prayer language. Not babble. That's nowhere present in Acts 2. You cannot get that out of language. Well, let's go over to Acts chapter 10. What was it that happened with Cornelius? Turn to Acts chapter 10. The Lord had to give Peter a vision. The Lord had to give Cornelius a vision to call for Peter. And then while Peter was being called for, the Lord had to instruct Peter a little bit to get Peter to get over this prejudice, this bigotry that he had, this prejudice against Gentiles. And so Peter walks through a Gentile door, something he had never thought he would ever do. None of the apostles ever thought they would ever have to do that. And verse 43 says that Peter was in the middle of his message. Verse 44, Peter was still speaking these things, and the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, that is, all of Cornelius' household. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles also. Are you kidding me? The Spirit of our God living in a Gentile? Could it be? They were amazed. Why? Verse 46, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. You say, was Peter convinced that the Spirit of God could really reside in the heart of a Gentile? That a Gentile could be saved the same way and to the same degree as a Jew? Verse 47, Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. What was it that convinced Peter that these Gentiles could be saved? Spoken tongues. And all of the Jewish believers who came with Peter, their jaws hit the floor when they heard Gentiles manifesting the gifts of the Spirit. Well, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, the apostles called him on the carpet. You went and ate with Gentiles. Explain yourself. So Peter does, and he gets down to verse 15. Look what he says. Chapter 11, verse 15, I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. Now look at verse 15 real closely and answer me this question. When was the last time that Peter had experienced this phenomenon of tongues? Verse 15, The Spirit of God fell upon us on them just as it did upon me last night while I was praying and I spoke in tongues. No. Just upon, just as it does upon all Christians everywhere whenever they gather on the Lord's Day and people are speaking in tongues. No. What does Peter say? The Spirit fell upon them just as it did upon us when? 
at the beginning. The only thing Peter can point to that he can liken this experience to is the day of Pentecost. Back at the beginning of the whole thing, when the Spirit of God came upon us and we manifested the Spirit of God by being able to speak in those languages and those dialects, Cornelius did the same thing that we did back then. It's significant to me that when Peter wants to liken his experience with Cornelius to something, that he points not to his own prayer language, not to something that he does every day, not to something that the 3,000 people did who got saved on the day of Pentecost, but he points back to the apostolic experience. He says it was just like that. What's the last thing he can liken it to? It was about 10 years ago at Pentecost. That's what it was like. Friends, I certainly get no indication from the text, nor does Luke tell us anything that indicates to us that this was the experience of everybody, everywhere, all the time. It's not there. When Peter wants to identify it with something, he points back to Pentecost. That's what happened back then, ten years ago. That's what happened in the home of Cornelius. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, Now, is tongue something different in Acts chapter 10 than it is in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, it's what? Languages. What is it in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius? Peter says it's the same gift that he gave to us. Peter was there on the day of Pentecost. Peter knows what the genuine article is. He knows this is no counterfeit. And so he says God gave to him the exact same gift he gave to us back in the beginning. That same thing that happened back then happened there in the home of Cornelius. And Peter can point back to that. It's the same gift. Languages. It's languages in Acts chapter 2. It's languages in Acts chapter 10. Now that brings us back to where we started in Acts chapter 19. It says in verse 6, Paul laid his hands upon them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Same word for tongues is used in Acts chapter 2. Now, some people assume that what is happening in Acts 19 and what is happening in Acts 10 is different than what happened in Acts 2. Does Luke indicate that they're a different thing? Same phenomena. It's tongues. What happened in Acts 2 happened in Acts 10 and it happened in Acts 19. It's the same thing happening three separate times. 1 Corinthians was written right after this from the city of Ephesus And in those three scathing, rebuking chapters that Paul authors to the Corinthian churches to clarify and to correct their abuses of the spiritual gifts, not once does Paul indicate that tongues is anything other than what it was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Languages. Not prayer languages. Not angelic languages. Not incomprehensible syllabic utterings forth. But actual supernatural ability to speak fluently a language, even a dialect, that one has never learned. And they prophesied and they spoke the mighty wonders of God. Now what's happening in Acts chapter 19? Well, what I want you to notice, how many times is tongues mentioned in the book of Acts? Three times. Three instances. How many years does the book of Acts cover? Thirty years. We have three times the tongues are mentioned in the book of Acts, covering a time span of 30 years. Now, if you listen to modern-day tongues advocates, you would get the feeling 
that tongues is on every page of every verse of the entire book of Acts. But it's not. It was rare. It only happened three times in a 30-year time period that Luke signals out. He doesn't say that the 3,000 who got saved on the day of Pentecost spoke in tongues. He doesn't say that all the priests who got saved and were coming to faith in Acts chapter 6 spoke in tongues. He doesn't say that Silas or Timothy or Philip or Barnabas or even Paul himself spoke in tongues. You know what's given to us as the norm in the book of Acts? They hear the Word, they believe on the Lord, they are baptized. That's it. What are the exceptions to that? You have these unique situations where somebody believes and when they receive the Spirit, they manifest the Pentecostal or the Pentecost gift of tongues. only happens three times. It's rare in the book of Acts. Friends, it's rare in the New Testament. Paul writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, two letters to the Thessalonians, two letters to Timothy, who was ministering in the church at Ephesus, by the way, a letter to Titus, and not once in any of those books does he mention tongues. Not once. It's not in the rest of the New Testament. Where do you get it? You get three blistering, scathing chapters to the Corinthians because they had so abused the gift. And then you get three references in the book of Acts spread out over 30 years. Do you get the impression that this was something that every Christian did every day as a matter of habit? I don't get that impression. Luke certainly doesn't indicate that. So what's going on in Acts chapter 19? Follow the progression. Acts chapter 2 is who? What's the identity of the group in Acts chapter 2? They're Jews on the day of Pentecost. The church is coming into existence and you have Jews there. In Acts chapter 10, who is it? Gentiles being welcomed and brought into the church under apostolic oversight, that is Peter. Who do you have in Acts chapter 19? Is it Jews? Yeah. Is it Gentiles? Could be. They're disciples of John the Baptist. But there's something else that makes them unique. They're Old Testament saints. Jews, Gentiles, Old Testament saints. Each of these instances is something unique, historically unique, unrepeatable, and not intended to be a pattern or a norm for all people for all times. Acts chapter 2, you have Jews brought into the church as the church is birthed. And the visible evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in them individually and corporately is tongues. In Acts chapter 10, when Gentiles are brought into the church, something visible, audible, supernatural happened in order to demonstrate to all watching that a Gentile could really be saved. And so Pentecost kind of caught up with the Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 19, another ten years later, you have another instance where now Pentecost has caught up with Old Testament saints. So now you have everybody in the fold. Jews, Gentiles, and this little transition group of Old Testament saints. And this phenomenon of tongues happened in Acts 10 and Acts 19 to demonstrate that these groups of people were included in what originally happened on the day of Pentecost. Do you know why God gave the manifestation of tongues to Cornelius? There is no way in all of the world that any Jew would ever believe under any circumstances that a Gentile could be indwelt by the Spirit of God. No way. God had to do something to demonstrate to Peter and to all of the rest of the apostles, these are my children too. And when Peter said to the other apostles, 
He gave them the same gift He gave to us. Their mouths were stopped. Chapter 11, verse 18, they said, wow. I guess God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. We would have never thunk it. But we can't deny it. He gave them the gift. This is an inadequate illustration, but it would serve a purpose to give you this illustration. It's kind of like a a rock being thrown into a pond. You have this initial splash, Pentecost, and then as the ripples move out, they overtake Gentiles, Cornelius, and it's kind of a, he hits the ripple effect. And then as they move out from there, you get these Old Testament saints in Acts chapter 19, the same thing happens to them. Is that intended to be normal? Well, not really. You have a phenomenon in Acts 2, and as it progresses, as the church begins to spread out, you have the same thing hitting again in a couple of different instances, as different groups are brought into the church. Demonstrating, listen, always under apostolic authority and with apostles present, demonstrating that Jews, Gentiles, and even those Old Testament transitional saints who are sort of caught in limbo are all one in the body of Christ. So there's one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father over all people. Jew, Gentile, no distinction. Does that make sense? John Stott writes this, The laying on of apostolic hands together with tongue-speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. The New Testament does not universalize them. There are no disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. Can I expect this to happen to me? Well, if you were baptized by John the Baptist and you have yet to hear the message of Christ, and you're sitting to here kind of stuck between Old Testament and New Testament, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And if an apostle were here today in order to welcome you officially into the body of Christ with the laying on of hands, then yeah, you could probably expect this to happen to you today. So how do I know that I'm saved then? We typically want these flashy, supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. I want to know that I'm saved. And so I go get this adrenaline rush, this filling of the Spirit, and then I speak in tongues, and that's supposed to give me some confidence or some comfort or some charge up for the week. That's not how it works. Do you want to know that you're saved? Stop looking for some supernatural manifestation and examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. By this you know you've passed from death to life because I love the brethren. See, I know that I'm saved not because I ever spoke in tongues. I never have. Never spoke in tongues. But I know that I'm saved because I love the brethren. I love Christ's church. I love His elect. I love His redeemed. There's nothing I love more than being with God's people on God's day. There's nothing I love more than being with God's people any day for that matter, but especially on the Lord's day. By this I know that I passed from death to life because I love the brethren. Do you love the brethren? Or is this just optional for you? I could care less whether I ever see another Christian. I just love the Lord. No, no. Don't believe that for a minute. You can tell a Christian by what they love. They love righteousness. They love the brethren. They love the church. They love Christ. They love obedience. They love His Word. There's nothing they would rather do than to worship God and be involved in His Word. Nothing. And you can tell a Christian by what they hate. They hate sin. So that when they see sin in their lives, they repent of it and turn from it and shun it and run away from it and turn to righteousness. You can tell a Christian by what they hunger after. They hunger after righteousness, after the Word of God, after fellowship with God and with God's people. 
And you can tell a Christian because they progress in sanctification. There's fruit of the Spirit in their lives. There's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's long-suffering, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. They hunger after the Word and the fruits of the Word. They love to be with God's people. All of those things are the mark of a believer. I hope you're not waiting around for some supernatural manifestation. Friends, these things are not the marks of the Spirit. You know you're saved because you are able to examine yourself and to see if you be in the faith. You love God's people. You love God's Word. You love being amongst God's people. You love righteousness. Hunger after those things that please Him. Do you love obedience? Those are the marks of the Spirit of God in the life of those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for even this very difficult text of Scripture that is before us. Difficult only because sometimes we approach it with preconceived notions and expectations. Difficult because of the lack of detail that by Your Spirit You've given us, but You have given us enough to understand what has gone on here. We thank You that You have given us also the illumination of the Spirit of God who is able to illuminate these things to our heart and to our minds. We thank You above all for Your truth, for Your Spirit, for Your church, and for Your Word. Thank You that You glorify Yourself in Your Word and even those very difficult portions of Your Word is difficult for us to understand being 2,000 years removed from them. We offer You praise and glory and adoration today before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.